Section 4 of Pantrophian. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pantrophian by Alexis Sawyer. Manipulation of Flour. Man has not always eaten fine wheaten bread, biscuits, or sponge cakes, and for many centuries the inexperience of his palate prevented his imagining or understanding those magiric combinations, that science of good living, which requires time and serious study. Nature makes us hungry. Art creates, modifies, and directs the appetite. These are incontestable truths, which this work will solve to unfold, and, if necessary, to prove, should any of our readers unfortunately not be already convinced of the depth of these wise axioms. Let us go no further back than the year 2000 before the Christian era, and enter together the tent of the father of nations, Abraham. We might lead you to the fireside of each of the nineteen patriarchs who preceded him, but that would take us too far. In the interior of this nomad dwelling, Sarah, the venerable companion of the pastor king, has just prepared, with flour and water, round pieces of flattened paste, which she places on the hearth and covers afterwards with hot ashes. It was thus that princes and servants made bread in the east. The Jewish people who inhabited the desert ate no other kind, and the prophet Elijah, reposing under the shade of a juniper tree, appeased his hunger with this simple and primitive food. Sometimes, however, at certain periods of solemnity, the Hebrews used a gridiron placed on the coals or a frying-pan into which they put the paste. But these various modes of cooking produced a kind of cake, dry, thin, and brittle, somewhat like the Jewish Passover cake, which was broken by the hand without the aid of a knife. They were called lechem, choice and chief food, and the mother of the family generally renewed them each day. The inhabitants of the East thought so much of bread that it was considered a special mark of regard and hospitality to the person to whom it was offered. Boaz says to Ruth, At meal-time come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. Although the use of bread without leaven and baked under the ashes was common among the Jews, it is nevertheless evident that they knew and employed at an early period some substance to raise the dough, which they designated by the manner of seor. It was perhaps flour diluted with water left to get sour. Pliny assures us that of all means employed by the ancients to render bread savoury and light, this is the most simple and easy. It appears not unlikely that the Hebrews learned from the Egyptians how to prepare the leaven they made use of. The period at which an illusion is made to it for the first time in the Bible, renders this supposition likely. It is when the people of God were about to escape from the slavery of the Egyptians, and are preparing to celebrate the Passover on the eve of their setting out for the desert. The Israelites, therefore, knew how to make bread more digestive and of better taste than is generally believed, not so good, perhaps, as our delicate fancy bread, but better than the clumsy lumps of paste baked under the ashes, in the frying-pan or on the gridiron. They had also ovens at a very distant period of their history, some four thousand years ago. 
These ovens were made with bricks or clay. Afterwards they used iron and brass, but nothing in the holy writings shows us that any one exercised among them the trade of baker, at least at this early period, nor indeed very much later. The chief baker or butler, whose punishment and death Joseph foretold, when he interpreted that officer's dream, was an Egyptian and belonged to King Pharaoh. Hitherto an infallible book has been our guide. Let us now dive into the dark and almost boundless regions of fabulous antiquity. The most frightful god of which the fevered imagination of man could possibly form an idea, a god with the face and legs of a goat, the horrible Pan, according to some credulous writers, taught mortals the art of making and baking bread. The name even of this food, they say, furnishes an incontestable proof of this assertion. You are mistaken, reply more sensible writers. It is in the Greek word pan, signifying all, that we must seek the etymology of this nutritious substance, which accompanies all other elements, takes their place if needful, and agrees equally with all mankind. This, one would think, is conclusive. But the learned, the philologist, and every procrustes of literature protests against a halt with so fair a field before him. It is from the word pascere, proudly exclaims another interpreter, that the substantive, bread, is derived. This word has been rather disfigured on its way. Think of the length of time it has been travelling down to us. Ceres taught the Greeks how to cultivate corn. They learned from Megalate and Megalamase how to knead flour and bake it in ovens. The gratitude of the Boeotians erected statues and altars to their memories, and shortly after, Greece could boast of having obtained the most skilful bakers in the world. The bread of Athens and Megara had a well-deserved reputation. Its whiteness dazzled the eye, and its taste was exquisite. This voluptuous and fickle nation very soon began to tire of so intelligent and simple a manipulation, and must needs mix with the paste a host of ingredients which greatly altered its flavour, and seventy-two different sorts of bread took birth from the scientific association of milk, oil, honey, cheese, and wine, with the best flour. All these varieties were called by the generic name of artos, bread, to which was added an epithet which prevented the mistaking of one kind for another. The bread market at Athens was very amusing. Women, for the fair sex busied themselves with this trade, waited, seated by the side of their baskets until Mercury should send them customers, and woe to those who came late, or whose evil genius led them to find fault with either the quality, quantity, or price of the goods. Have you ever heard the ladies of Billingsgate playing off their pleasant jokes on a timid countryman, or a foreigner whose accent had betrayed him? It is a running fire of puns and crude, picturesque expressions, which nothing can resist. Our Greek market women would have been more than a match for them. Can we bestow upon them greater praise? Some of them sold azumos, a delicate sort of biscuit, but rather tasteless, prepared without leaven. Others, irresistible sirens, invited children to taste of the relishing artologanos, in which a renowned baker had the talent of introducing wine, pepper, oil, and milk. Here the sparkling eyes of a rich Epicurean were on the lookout for some escarites, 
a very light paste, seasoned with new sweet wine and honey, and which was relished even by fatigued appetites at the close of a repast. The poorer people made their choice among heaps of dolires or typhies. They were coarse compounds of rye and barley. The ladies of fashion, petite maîtresse, preferred the puff-cakes called placites, or the sweet melitutes, whose exquisite and perfumed flour was delicately kneaded with the precise honey of Mount Hymettus. Lastly, the robust workmen of the Piraeus brought the Tyrontes, bread mixed with cheese, which the higher classes of society in Athens abhorred, and which even the middling classes excluded from their tables. Let us add to this the imperfect enumeration that the Greeks baked their bread in several different manners, some in ovens, others under ashes, over charcoal, or between two pieces of iron, similar to our gaufre moulds, and under a bell or cover of some metal with a rim round the top and fire over it. For making a batch of bread, they employed nine pounds six ounces of leaven to twelve bushels of flour. With regard to their ovens, in the construction of which they excelled, they always took particular care to place them near a handmill, in order that the various processes that the wheat had to undergo should take place with ease and promptitude. The Romans for a long time, paltifagists, or eaters of gruel, etc., and it would be difficult to ascertain with accuracy the precise period at which they gave a preference to bread. They no doubt knew of it before the year 365 of Rome, for at the siege of the capital by the Gauls, Jupiter, who protected the besieged, thought of nothing better to get them out of their difficulties than to appear at night to their general, Manlius, and to give him the following advice. Make, said he, bread with all the flour you have left in store, and throw it to the enemy to show them that Rome has no apprehension of being reduced by famine. This stratagem, worthy of a merry Andrew, pleased Manlius so much that he immediately put it into execution. The Gauls fled, Master Jupiter was highly delighted with the trick he had played, and thereby the Romans got rid of this swarm of barbarians. Whether this story be true or not, the people of Romulus had a decided taste for gruel. It was a national dish, and was only discontinued to be given to the soldiers, defenders of the Republic, when it was perceived that their laborious duties required more substantial food. The Romans made their gruel of all kinds of flour. King Numa, 1715 BC, guided by the advice of the nymph Egeria, taught his subjects the art of parching corn, or converting it into flour by means of mortars, and of making that gruel with which he liked to regale himself. This good prince was rather fond of interfering in what did not concern him, and the royal compound was afterwards cooked in the public bakehouses, which the piety of the sovereign placed under the protection of the powerful Fornax, a goddess unknown till then, and who soon became the object of general and fervent worship. There is but one step from gruel to bread. The Romans perceived it. Thus this favourite dish lost its reputation, and the worship of Fornax somewhat cooled. But, on the other hand, there was still the smell of cakes on all sides, cooking on the hearth, on the coals, in the small bell-stoves, and in large baking-pans, until ultimately they became acquainted with the use of ovens. 
At last Rome began to have them built, under the reign of Tarquinius Superbus, about 630 years before the Christian era. They were solid constructions, immovable, and very like those of the present day. Men were employed to keep up the necessary degree of heat, and their useful profession, thanks to the strange caprices which so tyrannically ruled the social hierarchy, became one of the vilest and most sordid occupations in the capital of the world. These ovens were ordered to be built far away from all edifices, in order to prevent accidents by fire, an excellent precaution where so many incautious and merry old gossips came daily to bake their bread. Once there, those worthy plebeians amused themselves by giving full scope to their noisy fun, slandering their neighbours freely and charitably, telling each other all the little scandal they had picked up here and there, among the good souls in the neighbourhood. Hence these public places of labour and incessant babbling were called the gossip bakehouses. These joyous meetings continued until the arrival of Greek bakers, a hundred and seventy years B.C., who followed the victorious armies of the Republic on their return from Macedonia. These new operatives effected a complete revolution in the art of making bread. They reformed the taste of their masters, and, by degrees, the proverbial frugality of the conquerors of the universe gave way to the exquisite researches and wonderful delicacies of those whom they had subdued. The Romans perceived the importance of perpetuating the talent of these strangers, and converting it eventually into a national industry. With these views, they gave them Roman colleagues, and subsequently they were formed into a college or sort of association, which no member could quit on any pretext whatever. The son followed his father's profession, and he who married the daughter of a baker became one himself. Sometimes one of these privileged artisans was raised to the dignity of senator, as an honour to his colleagues but in that case he was required to abandon his fortune to the person who took his place. He might, however, decline the dignity, and remain at his kneading trough. All alliances with gladiators and comedians were interdicted them, and the law decreed that the delinquent guilty of such dishonour should be first scourged, then banished, and that his property should be confiscated for the benefit of the community. Finally, the prodigal baker was assimilated with the dishonest bankrupt and expelled the college. The above details on some of the dispositions of the law regarding this interesting corporation sufficiently prove the importance that the Roman government attached to it, and wished it should always maintain. The bakers of Rome received from the public granaries whatever they required, at a price fixed by the magistrate. If the officer charged with the distribution of it gave a bad quality, or exacted a bribe to supply good corn, that officer was disgraced, and he became forever a journeyman baker. Independently of public bakeries, the number of which reached 329 under the reign of Augustus, there were also, in the houses of the wealthy, slaves whose sole occupation was the making of bread, and these slaves brought an exorbitant price when they excelled in their art. They used portable ovens made of iron or earthenware, under which they placed red-hot coals. Sometimes they employed a round brass vessel with a cover, which was put under the flames. In the houses where the greatest luxury reigned, they had a kind of silver mould from which the bread was taken and served to the guests. It is absolutely necessary to dive into the private life of the Roman people. 
and not to neglect any of their domestic customs, accounts of which are scattered here and there in the writings of the more serious historians, and among the dangerous frivolities of certain poets. If we wish to have a correct idea of the excessive refinement which the opulent classes evinced, even in the most ordinary things. Modern nations are satisfied with the bread more or less white, and even bear, without much complaint, certain illicit mixtures, in which various heterogeneous substances are sometimes strangely amalgamated. But this was not the case in Rome. The prefect of provisions, Praefectus Anoni, was scrupulously careful to see that the supply of bread was abundant, that it was of exact weight, that the manipulation of it was excellent, and that it was made of the best flour the public granaries contained. As we have already observed, that was one of the most serious cares of the government on behalf of a people who only required two things, bread and the circus, and whose ferocity, when pressed by hunger, knew no bounds. They studied carefully every modification that the art of baking might seem to require. They examined the leaven in use, and experimented with new kinds. The following are the compositions Pliny has transmitted to us. The Romans sought much of millet for their leaven. They mixed it with sweet wine, in which they let it ferment a year. They employed also wheat bran, soaked for three days in sweet white wine, and dried in the sun. Of this they diluted a certain quantity at the time of making bread, which was left to ferment in the best wheat flour, and afterwards mixed with the entire mass. The leavens just mentioned were made during the vintage. The rest of the year they were replaced by the following. A dish containing two pounds of barley paste was placed on red-hot coals, and heated until ebullition commenced. It was put into vessels till it became sour. Very often leaven was procured from dough just made. A piece was taken from the mass previous to salt being added. It was then left to turn sour, and might be used the next day. The celebrated naturalist who supplies these details tells us that, in his time, the Gauls and Spaniards, after having made a drink from wheat, saved the scum to raise the dough, and that their bread was the lightest of all. It will be difficult to form an idea of the prodigious luxury which Rome introduced into an aliment so common, and of such universal use as bread. Its name, its form, and flavour indicated the various ranks of society to which it belonged. There was the senator's bread, that of the knights, of the citizens, of the people, and that of the peasants. Let us go together under the vast galleries supported by those magnificent arcades. The Aediles have preceded us. They are visiting the shops. It is the Forum Pistrinum, or Bread Market. The year is good. A septier, five bushels, of wheat is only twenty-five shillings, and provisions of all kinds abound in Rome. Foreigners also are here, attracted by curiosity, for Vespasian is preparing to deposit with solemnity the spoils of Jerusalem in the Temple of Peace. In the middle of the enclosure you see the statue of Vesta, the goddess worshipped by bakers. In the front and round the gallery, those open stalls are loaded with a number of round loaves of the same form and weight. They are all five inches in thickness. The top is divided by eight notches, that is to say, they are first divided across, and the four parts are again subdivided. These lines are made in the dough, 
so that they may be more easily broken the roman gentry and shopkeepers give the preference to this sort of household bread simply composed of flour water and salt you perceive here and there several baskets full of heavy biscuits they are called autopyron it is a coarse black food composed of bran mixed with a little flour and made expressly for the dogs and slaves do you see that colossal looking man with enormous limbs who is walking about with an air of stupidity and whose small head is covered with scars the dealers know his profession and one of them offers him the athletos bread it is kneaded without leaven with soft white curd cheese and is a coarse heavy food which that class of people seem to partake of with great delight that stout baker before us occupies two of the most spacious shops in the market on the left of the statue he is one of the richest members of the corporation and is the principal purveyor for the camp and army those large sacks placed before him with so much symmetry contain the buccellatum biscuit or dried bread for the troops his neighbour called the greek was born in athens he is the fashionable purveyor to the princes senators and sybarites of rome no one understands so well as himself the art of mixing salt oil and milk with the best wheat and flour an exquisite combination which produces the celebrated bread of cappadocia served only on the tables of the wealthy with the artoplites a light bread made with the best wheat and flour and baked in a mould it is the only kind of which refined persons can partake if we were not afraid of tiring you we could point out many other sorts of bread which abound in the forum pistrinum for there is some for all tastes and classes from the artoptikii baked in moulds a most nutritious and digestive bread down to the furfuraceus a mass of indigestible bran that the wildest savages among the scythians could not have swallowed with impunity we should have spoken to you of the astrologicus bread the paste of which is similar to that we use in our days to make fritters commonly called batter also of the cacabaceus which is indebted for its agreeable and spicy flavour to the water which is previously boiled in a kind of bronzed stewpan and the siligenius bread made of the best flour its manipulation is difficult and tedious no matter the epicurean prefers it when by chance he happens to be hungry neither ought we to forget the panis madidas a species of paste made of milk and flour from which the fashionable ladies and effeminate dandies covered their faces before going to bed to preserve the freshness and beauty of their complexion but this enumeration may appear to you idle and endless let us therefore leave the market and assist at the distribution of bread civilis among the people of which thirteen ounces is given to each person we will then give a rapid glance at the various other cereals besides wheat which in some shape or other are converted into food the customs of the middle ages cannot be better illustrated than by adding the following curious notes the norman king subjected the bakers to very severe laws with respect to the weight and price of bread the first offence was punished by the confiscation of their bread the second by a fine and the third by the pillory st louis made statutes for the bakers of paris he forbade them to bake on sunday or any festival day 
under pain of a fine of eighteen sous, about eighteen pence, and a certain quantity of bread, but he gave them permission to open their shops and sell every day of the year without exception. In the seventeenth century a new regulation was made concerning bakers. They were to bake daily and have always on sale three kinds of bread, that is, that known as pain de chalis of twelve ounces, pain de chapitre of ten ounces, and brownish household bread of sixteen ounces. The price of each to be douze deniers, a halfpenny, marked by the baker with his own particular mark. They were also permitted to make rolls and other sorts, but not to expose them for sale, under pain of being fined four hundred Paris livres, a little more than twelve pounds sterling. Master bakers were admitted at Paris in the fourteenth century in the following manner. When a young man had been successively winnower, sifter, kneader, and foreman, he could, by paying a certain amount to the king as legion's money, become an aspirant baker, and commence business on his own account. Four years later he was received as master by going through certain formalities. On a given day he set out from his house, followed by all the bakers of the town, and repaired to the residence of the master of the bakers, to whom he presented a new pot filled with nuts, saying, Master, I have accomplished my four years. Here is my pot of nuts. Then the master of the bakers asked the secretary of the trade whether that were true, and having received a reply in the affirmative, the master of the bakers returned the pot to the aspirant, who broke it against the wall, and was at once reckoned amongst the masters. Let us reckon up the different kinds of bread that were in use at that epoch. The bread made simply with flour, water, salt, and yeast, the common bread. The best was made at Chai, or Gonesse. The bread cooked in hot water, pain et chaudé, in England we should call it baked dumpling. The bread made of the finest flour beaten a long time with two sticks, pounded bread. The bread made of the very finest and purest flour, biscuit flour, slightly baked, roll bread. The bread made of fine flour, kneaded with butter and sprinkled with whole wheat, sheep bread. The bread made of fine flour, eggs and milk, Christmas bread. And lastly, rye bread, kneaded with spice, honey or sugar, gingerbread. End of section 4